take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you make anything of value, it won't be long before someone tries to counterfeit it. Now, I'm not talking about a pirated version of the same object like a a movie or a, a song that you pull off the internet. I'm talking about a cheaper version of the real object. Can you think of some counterfeit items that are out there? Faith healers. There are certainly lots of counterfeits. Um, the most uh, classic example is money. Okay, Someone gives you a counterfeit bill and you think that it has the same value as the real thing. It's made on cheaper paper. It, it doesn't it doesn't have the same value. And uh can be anything from jewelry to clothes. There's all sorts of, of people out there who are trying to knock off the, the, the premium value. And so they make a counterfeit of that item. But I think the most dangerous, dangerous type of counterfeit there is is with regard to revealed religion. And perhaps the most flagrant example is found in Exodus chapter 32 when Aaron uh, makes a golden calf. He makes a golden calf and he says that this is the God who led us out of Egypt. They tried to take God and put him into a form. And instead, what he had was a counterfeit God. Now, perhaps a more subtle example is with Ananias and Sapphira. They they wanted to have the real thing. That is, they wanted to be seen as being really godly and really generous. Instead, by stealing from God, in effect, they gave a counterfeit generosity, a counterfeit godliness. It was a cheaper form of the real thing. And in general, those who know little about the transforming power of Scripture are the ones who are quick to imitate it and to to give that sort of appearance. The most common way that we can counterfeit uh, the truth is by making the thing that is central to be part of the periphery and the thing that is the periphery to be central. That's how we can take what is what should be the real thing and set it aside for something that is fake cheap. And and what we're going to see here today is the nature of real Christianity in Mark chapter 2 verses 23 through 28. And it happened that he Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, "Look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We've been looking at some controversies between the Pharisees and Jesus Christ. This is the fourth of five controversies that that come up in the life of Jesus. And and Mark gives these back to back. He begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, when Jesus claims that he can forgive sins. And the Pharisees say, no, there's no way. No one forgives sin except for God alone. And so Jesus says, well, fine, I'll show you that I can forgive sins because it is easier for you to see the result of me healing someone than it is for you to see the results of me forgiving their sins. So he, he heals the man who had been crippled. And then in chapters, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus does something pretty scandalous for his day, and that is he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees have a big problem with this, so they approach his disciples on it. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus defends the disciples because they were not fasting. The Pharisee says, the, the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting, and our disciples are fasting. How come yours are not? And Jesus says, they cannot fast while the bridegroom is still here. While I am here, it doesn't make sense for them to be sorrowful and to beg for my coming. They should be spending time with me. And next week, after we see this controversy, next week we're going to see that Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, which for the Pharisees was a problem. So we need to understand what is real Christianity. If we are going to be people who... who are fearful or who do not want to counterfeit the true thing, true Christianity, then we need to determine what is true Christianity. And I think this passage will help us in that way. And there's three things that we see about real Christianity. Number one, real Christianity cannot be reduced to rules and rituals. Verses 23 and 24. Real Christianity cannot be reduced to rules and rituals. What was happening here is that Jesus' disciples were coming into these grain fields. Now, if you have a King James Version, it says that they were coming into the cornfields. And what you have to remember is that the King James Version was written by men in England. And they understand the word corn to be grain. Okay, So they use what we understand as grain, they, they say corn. In fact, some people in the British Isles still use that word, corn, to refer to grain. But if you go back into the historical records, you'll find that that uh, in Palestine, corn was not even introduced into that area for uh, until about 500 years ago. Okay, so so this is actually grain fields, and that, that's why in in some of your translations it says that they went into grain fields and they were picking heads of grain, not ears of of corn. And what would happen here is that travelers who didn't take enough food for a trip they would be allowed by the Mosaic Law to pick these heads of grain in someone else's field. And I'll show you where they get that permission. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. If a person was hungry and they were walking through someone's field, it was completely legitimate for them to pick from the grain that was there or whatever other type of crop they had. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, 
but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, so the point that the Mosaic Law is setting up here for these Jewish people is that they were allowed to take enough food to satisfy their hunger. It wasn't that they could go in and try to just start wielding the sickle there in the grain field and making a profit for themselves. The point is, is once they were full, they were no longer allowed to do it. And so, uh, so this is what the disciples were doing here in Mark chapter 2. It says in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, And it happened that when he was passing through the grain fields, Jesus, on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they saw that, that this was a problem. That The disciples were not... It wasn't that they were stealing from the farmers. The Pharisees recognized that everybody could walk, anybody could walk through a field and pick grain at their, own, uh, at their own whim, their own desire. But the problem was that they were doing it on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had this list of laws, that you list of things that you could not do on the Sabbath, list of a list of works that you could not do. In fact, they had 39 works that you could not perform on the Sabbath. And so you can imagine what the Pharisees were doing here. They were trying to accuse Jesus and his disciples. That you find this all throughout the Gospels that they're always trying to find a way. And what they do is they use the Sabbath as the means to accuse them. So that you can imagine that they're standing over there with their little checklist, all the things that they could not do. Aha, number four, you cannot reap any harvest on the Sabbath, which was true. A normal worker could not come into his field and for a profit uh, bring in his harvest. He could not do that on the Sabbath. But that's not what the disciples were doing. What the Pharisees were suggesting were, was that plucking the grain was reaping, Rubbing off the husk was threshing, and blowing the chaff from the hands was winnowing. And each of those three things were on their list of works that could not be performed on the Sabbath. And so they said, you're doing this? That is wrong. You are doing something against God. And so you you see that they're trying to trap Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then why don't you care about holiness? Why don't you care about the Mosaic Law? And so they used the Sabbath as a means to trap Jesus and His disciples. And the main point that they're trying to make is, is the day that it was performed on. It was on the, Sabbath, on the Sabbath. It was the timing that was the problem. The Sabbath was a day in the Old Testament that was designed by God to stop all activity, all uh, extraneous type activity. And it was in order that people could, could have a guaranteed day of rest. God knew that, that people would, would work themselves too hard and that they would not take a re- day of rest if He did not demand one from them. And so He required that people use that day as a special time of rest and also a time of focus on God. To stop, put things aside, and think about God and remember what He had done for them. And it was true. There was no work that was to be done on the Sabbath. But as we'll see, the, the, the Pharisees took it too far. 
they confined real Christianity to a set of rules and rituals. You see their checklist? If you don't meet up to our checklist, then you are not a real Christian. You're not really a follower of God, was their idea. And so the disciples were certainly uh, not liable for any sort of wrong here because they were not reaping for a harvest. They, I'm sorry, they're not reaping for a profit. They were doing it simply to fill their stomach because they were hungry. And so the, the Pharisees didn't quite get the point. And the problem was with the Pharisees is that their whole approach to the Scriptures, their whole approach to the law was all wrong. They thought that, that real religion, real Christianity could be confined to a set of rules. But real Christianity cannot be confined to a set of rules and rituals. Okay, Now, Please do not, do not hear me say that rules are wrong. It's, if anyone puts a rule on me or some sort, of, they try to impose some sort of ritual, then they are wrong because real Christianity cannot be confined to that. Certainly, that's not what what Christ says. He does not say that we are we are free from all rules, but we can't we can't take what God has said to us in the Scripture and put it on a checklist. Okay, so God, what do you want me to do here? Boom, got that one done. Got that one done. We'll see that real Christianity is about a relationship and about understanding the the heart or the motivation behind the law. Okay, it's, it's not just about following all these different rules and rituals. And I think that'll become more clear as we go through this passage. So, real Christianity cannot be confined to rules and rituals. Secondly, real Christianity prioritizes values. Verses 25 and 26. Notice what Jesus says to them after they accuse Him and the disciples of doing something wrong. Verse 25. And He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? So Jesus puts this back in their court. Jesus could have simply just said, no, they're not doing anything wrong. You guys are the ones that are wrong. But instead, he he gives them a question, which Jesus often does, in order to get them to think. He says, have you not read what David had done? Certainly they had read it. The point was, think about it. Think about the implications. Okay, Real Christianity prioritizes rules or prioritizes values. Now, what, was, what Jesus was doing was compare, comparing what the disciples did to what David had done before. And so in order for us to understand uh, what Jesus' comparison is here, we need to understand what happened with David. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll see this story in its context. 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. 
Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. This is where the temple was. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with the matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more then today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Here, David is fleeing from Saul. David and all his men come to the tabernacle there in Nob where it was stationed, and they were hungry. And normally, uh, a person, an average person, can come to the temple and, and eat of the ordinary bread, but this, the, the priest says, the Ahimelech, the priest says, there is no ordinary bread. All we have is the showbread. Now, the showbread was set on the table of presents in the tabernacle, and it was designed uh, to, to be there to show that, that God was the one who gives sustenance, that gives life. And at the end of the week, prior to the Sabbath, this old bread would be taken out and brand new bread would be put in its place. And so the old bread was left at the front of the tabernacle. And it was designed for the priest only to be able to eat of that bread. In fact, God said only the priest can eat of this bread, this leftover uh, bread. And David comes to him and says, do you have any bread for us? And Ahimelech says, no, all I have is the, the bread that's left over from, from the consecrated bread, so I don't have anything for you. And David says, but we have to have it. We, we are hungry. And so the priest, in verse 6, gives him the consecrated bread, which was against the rules, we could say. It was against what God had, had designed. And so the, the clear implication here is that, that there was an exception that was made for David. There was an exception made because he was hungry. He was at the point of death. And so there, the Scriptures give an acceptance. And what Jesus is implying in Mark chapter 2 is that no one condemned him for that. No one condemned the priest. No one condemned him. Turn back to Mark chapter 2. And before we get into the uh, trying to understand what exactly is going on here and what Jesus is trying to explain to the, the Pharisees, I do need to make one note um, about the priest that Jesus mentions here in verse 26. We'll begin with the quote in verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Do you notice who the priest was that Jesus said in verse 26? He says that Abiathar was the high priest. But if you remember from our reading in 1 Samuel chapter 21, who was the priest? It was Ahimelech. This is Abiathar's father. 
uh, Abiathar would later become the high priest. So is Mark mistaken? Is Jesus mistaken? mistaken? What is going on here? Obviously, we know that Jesus is sinless, so there's no way that he could have made a mistake. There's no way that he could have made an error because he is without error. And obviously, the Scriptures as well are without error. So we have to explain this in some other way. I think the the best explanation is that Jesus was simply saying, notice what he says there in verse 26, how he entered the house in the time of Abiathar the high priest. He's saying that during the time of, or we could say during the lifetime of Abiathar the high priest. Well, why didn't he just say Abiathar? Why did he call him the high priest? Well, I think we do the same thing. For example, I could say I had an ancestor an ancestor who went to elementary school with President George Washington. Now, was George Washington the president while he was in elementary school? By the way, I didn't have an ancestor. I'm just making an example, okay? Uh, was he a president? Was he the president while he was in elementary school? No, he was not. And so Jesus is saying, what we're saying there is that during the lifetime of President George Washington. Okay, we're not saying that the George Washington was the president during uh, the time that he was in elementary school. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's just saying the most well-known priest of that time is Abiathar. Okay, he he would later become the high priest. But instead of making all the technicalities and and trying to explain it out fully, he simply says during the lifetime of Abiathar the high priest. Okay, So I just wanted to make that clear so that, that, uh, that there was no point of confusion there. So Jesus says, look back to this story, Pharisees. Do you remember what happened? David came and he did something according to you that was against the rules. He was not supposed to eat of that bread. And David the point that Jesus is making is not that, that David did it on the Sabbath that he was wrong. It was that he did it at all. He should never have done this because he was not a priest himself. And so, according to the Pharisees, he had broken the law, yet the Scriptures do not condemn him. And the Pharisees, Jesus recognized, they would not condemn him either. And so Jesus knew that they would look back at the story and say, yes, I mean, that is completely legitimate. And the Pharisees were right in thinking that. That it was legitimate for them, for, for David to take this bread when he and his men were hungry because they were in a, a, a desperate situation. The Sabbath forbids work, and, and yet there is always work going on. Okay? Now, now, I want you to think about this in, in light of two things. One is with regard to God. Now, we say that God rested on the Sabbath day. Does that mean that God stopped completely all activity? Does that mean on the seventh day of creation, there was nothing going on that God was doing? Not at all. What would happen if God stopped working, if God stopped holding up the world, sustaining everything? It would no longer exist. And so God even works on the Sabbath to a point. And Jesus is saying, don't you recognize that? The same thing is true with regard to the priests. 
the law was that they were not to work on the Sabbath, and yet, who works on the Sabbath? Priests do. They have to get all these sacrifices ready. They have to, to go through all these rituals and things in order for them to be pleasing to God. So the law says not to work on the Sabbath, and yet priests work on the Sabbath. So this kind of goes along with the first point, that, that real Christianity, following after God, cannot be reduced to a set of rules and rituals. And this point that Jesus is making is that we have to be able to prioritize our values when it comes to the things of God. We have to prioritize them. Now, when God works on the Sabbath in that He continually sustains us and so on, and when the priests do all these things in order to to, to keep uh, within the, the law of Moses, they, in a way, we could say, desecrate the Sabbath because they worked. And yet they're innocent. And so what Jesus is saying is that that there are exceptions made all the time, and yet you're not willing to make one here. Now, let me give you an example from from John chapter 7. I'll just give you this reference. John chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, What do you do when a child is born a day before the Sabbath? A a, a male child. What do you do when a male child is born a day before the Sabbath? What day was the the boy supposed to be circumcised on? On the eighth day, right? Well, what happens... He's born the day before the Sabbath, so eight days later is the Sabbath day. He says, what do you do? Do you not do any work? Do you have the, the priest not, not uh, do the circumcision on the boy? No, you do it. He says, he, he says you set aside the Sabbath law in order to do this other more important law. Because this sets the boy apart as being set apart to God. And so, within uh, even the Mosaic Law, there is a prioritization of values. You see? And I would say that within Christianity, we also have to have a prioritization of values as well. We, we cannot put everything on the same level. Have you ever met somebody like that who puts every single thing in their life on the same level as everything else as far as uh, rules or demands that God has for them? So, with regard to loving God and serving God, they put that on the same level as no pants on ladies. Or You see what I'm saying? They, they, they come up with this, this bizarre type of, of support for their idea when it doesn't hold water. They, they try to make something that is minor become major. And, and all of these things... They put on the same level when in Christianity there should be a prioritization. You see? There should be a prioritization of values. And Jesus is saying, listen, I came to, to, to give freedom in this area and to, to reveal to you what the truth really is. And so what he's doing here in verse 26 is he's exonerating his disciples. He's saying there, there's no problem with what they're doing. Okay, you may see this as, as a problem with your little checklist, but 
with regard to the way that I look at it and with regard to the intent of the law, I know that they're not violating anything. Okay. Jesus is going to tell us what what the intent of the law was. What was the intent of the law of the Sabbath? And that's what he's going to show us in verses 27 and 28. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In these verses we see that real Christianity sees the light of all revelation coming to a sharp focus in Jesus Christ. It sees the light of all revelation. That is, the revelation of Scripture that that we have comes to a sharp focus in Jesus Christ. Now before we see that in verse 28, I want to, to, to show you where he's going with this in verse 27. He's saying the Sabbath was made for man. Okay, so which is serving which? Which is serving whom? Is man serving the Sabbath or is Sabbath serving man? The Sabbath is serving man, right? That's what he says there. He says the Sabbath was made for man. It was so that we could have rest. So that we could so that we could have some sort of blessing through this physical rest. And what the Pharisees were doing was giving these Sabbath restrictions. And so that now, man was serving whom? Or man was serving what? Man was serving the Sabbath. Sabbath became this this list of rules and rituals to the Pharisees, and they went even farther than what God had told them to go. And now man didn't become a blessing to them. Instead, it, it became a restriction. It became a, a, a jeopardy to their welfare. And so these tiny arbitrary regulations that the Pharisees man, made actually caused man to become a slave to the Sabbath. And now man bows down to all these rituals that the Pharisees had set up. And... <clears throat> So what we need to see here is that their binding traditions tended to nullify God's gracious purpose in giving the Sabbath. And that was for rest. That was to to give blessing to these people. And so now in verse 28, Jesus says, and by the way, Sabbath serves man, and I am the Son of Man. I am Lord over the Sabbath. So here's, here's His line of reasoning. If the Sabbath serves man, verse 27 says, yes, it does. And if the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, or Lord over man, is Jesus Christ Lord over man? Yes. Well, then Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is Lord over the Sabbath. And He can show what the original intent was of the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees would have quickly recognized that the Sabbath was to be was to be set apart as to the Lord God. Because in Exodus chapter twenty, verses nine and ten, when, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And so if if Jesus was saying that he was Lord of the Sabbath, he was saying something about himself, wasn't he? Similar to the time when he said that I forgive you of your sins. They're saying how can you say that? How can you say that you forgive sins? 
Jesus says, I can forgive sins because I am God. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly in that case in Mark chapter 2, but but he will say that later on in his ministry. And here, he's, he's being... Uh, He's being kind of guarded in the way that he's saying. But basically what he's saying is that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And if the Sabbath was designed for God or designed to be set apart, to set man apart to God, then I am God. That's what I'm trying to show you. Jesus is claiming his authority over it. And so he had the right to interpret its restrictions consistent with its original intent. Because the Pharisees certainly weren't there when God originally set down the Sabbath laws, but Jesus Christ was, because Jesus is God. And so the problem with the Pharisees is that that they didn't recognize that the Sabbath was subservient to Jesus Christ. And that's why I say that all revelation in Scripture from Genesis 3 on comes to a sharp focus in Jesus Christ. Now, we see this in, in several different ways. We see it with regard to the Passover feast. The Israelites had been practicing this Passover feast, um, and they had been doing it for years and years and years. And finally, it comes to a culmination in Jesus Christ, the real Passover, the ultimate, I should say, Passover lamb. And that's what the Passover feast was designed to, to point to Christ. The Feast of the Tabernacles was what we know today as the Feast of Lights, the Jewish Feast of Lights. And they would they would set up all these candelabra in the middle of the temple court and and they had seating all around the outside and Jesus was speaking to them in the temple court. And when, as the, you can imagine, on the last day, as the lights are going down, Jesus says, see these lights? Those point to me too because I am the light of the world. That is what he was saying. He was saying that that all of this revelation in the Old Testament points to me. We could could list numerous examples of, of how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And he was trying to explain to the Pharisees that he was the master of the Sabbath. That even the Sabbath pointed to him. Now, in the ancient Near East, the servant of a master points to the master so that when someone comes to the servant, they deflect their glory, their praise to their master. That's how they understood it. And so when the Sabbath serves Jesus Christ, the Sabbath points to Jesus Christ in their understanding and should be in ours as well. And so what we should see here is that the Sabbath is the ultimate has its ultimate fulfillment in the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Hey, this, this, all this rest that has been talked about all throughout the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ and the rest that we have in Him. In fact, if we were to turn to Matthew chapter 11, uh, Matthew chapter 12 actually is where this uh, story is repeated by Matthew, the, apost- the, the disciple. If we were to turn there, we would see that this story followed Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, which talk about Jesus uh, giving rest. That, that He says, my burden is light. My yoke is light and my burden is easy. 
And then he goes into, and then Matthew records this story, this very story. And what he's saying is that, you see, you see all of the rest that, that you have been experiencing all this time points to the rest that I provide. And so all the light of Revelation, all the Old Testament points to one thing. It points to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now, for us, sometimes life would be so much easier if we just had a list of do's and don'ts. Did you ever wish that? That God would just give it to me on a list. Okay? Just give I don't care how many volumes it is. I can look it up, but but just tell me what you want from me. How many hours should I read the scripture? How many people should I witness to this week? How often should I go to church? How many people do I need to lift up in in prayer? How long should I pray? Just tell me, God. What what should I wear? What kind of job do I It would be so much easier, wouldn't it? If God gave us a list of do's and don'ts. I think God doesn't do that. I think He didn't do that. Obviously because He's wiser than we. That He has a lot more wisdom than us. But I think He did that because if we just had a list of do's and don'ts like the Pharisees were trying to develop on their own, then it would turn into a robotic type of following of God, wouldn't it? We would say, okay, God told me to do that, I'll do that. We don't think about why He told me to do that. And so what God has done for us in the Scriptures, certainly He has given us rules, and, and He has given us a law. The New Testament is the law for us as New Testament believers, and we should follow it. But we should also ask questions. Why does God do that? Which is more important? Is it to obey or to sacrifice? I mean, that's a clear example of the prioritizing of values. Jesus says it's it's better to obey than to sacrifice. So it's not just here. Here's all the things you ought to do. You need to think about why. What's the reason that God does this? And what we see here in our passage today is that the Sabbath was not so that God could just give us a bunch of restrictions. That's not what God is about doing. God gave us the restrictions so that it would point us to whom? It would point us to Christ. And we would see that that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these laws, all of these rituals. They all point to Him. And then what it does for us is that uh, these Scriptures that we have for us now become for us a joy and a way for us to experience in a greater way what a great God we have and what a great Savior that we have through Jesus Christ. And so when we are looking at laws, what we should see is what is the motivation, what should be our motivation behind these laws that we've been given? And what we should find is that this causes us to develop practical Wisdom, and it causes us to search and to seek what is most of most value. God boiled it down to this 
a hierarchy, a, a prioritizing of values. Number one, love God with all your heart. Remember? And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments rest on these two. You see what God is doing there? If we, if we get these out of place, then all of a sudden God is no longer God. God has moved out of His place and now we love our neighbor more than, than we love God. And so we are seeking to please our neighbor. God says, no, you need to, you need to see the law and see how it fits, how to prioritize it, and that all laws point to Christ. And when we do, I think our our minds and our hearts will overflow with the joy that comes from knowing Christ and enjoying the benefit that we have in Him. Because we are no longer bound by these, these Pharisaic rules and rituals that they had set up. Now we can find our joy and our rest in Jesus Christ. What a great God we serve. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we uh, admit that that uh, we struggle sometimes with trying to obey You. And You have given us the entirety of Your Word. And sometimes it's it can become overwhelming. It's one of the largest books in the history of mankind. And so it is difficult for us to comprehend everything. And sometimes we set it aside because it is difficult. And yet we understand that the Old Testament was giving to, given to us, as Paul says, for our learning. And as, and as he says later to Timothy, that it is profitable for us, for teaching us, and for approving us and showing us examples of how we ought to live and how we ought not to live. But we also recognize the Old Testament was given to us to point us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the rules that You had set down, of the practices. And we pray that we would not miss that point. We pray that we would find Him at the center of all of our focus and our understanding, our devotion, our love, and that we would not be people who are confined to to a set of rules that we have designed, but that we would be committed to following and obeying You and the commands that You have laid down for us. And we pray that You'd help us to find the motivation behind those commands. We would understand what it is You are getting at. And even when we don't understand, we pray that we would still obey because You are a God of wisdom and You know much more than we. And so all we can do is submit. Lord, our question of why You do it is not... We do not intend it to be condemnatory that You should not have done this, but rather, what are You trying to develop within us? How can we develop a heart for You better? And we know that we can only do that by knowing more of Your Word and by obeying it. So we pray that You'd give us the grace to do that. Pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.